One mitzvah that we learn in the parasha of Emor is the mitzvah of what is called chadash. Chadash means that if you have new harvests from the new season, you may not eat those, that, that produce until such time as you've brought the Omer offering, which was brought in the Beis Hamikdash on the second day of Pesach. Now the Torah uses a word over there, or an expression, that this law applies in all of your settlements. And Rashi says that there's a debate between the wise men of Israel as to what exactly that means. Does it mean that even if you're outside of Israel, the laws of Chadash apply as well? Or does it mean that it's only once they had completely conquered the entire land of Israel that that's when the law would apply? And if that's the case, it only applies in Israel. So we need to understand why Rashi has to bring both opinions and how that's relevant to the simple understanding of the Pasuk. We're also going to see that under normal circumstances we distinguish between mitzvahs that apply to an individual, in which case wherever the individual may live the mitzvah will apply, and mitzvahs that apply to geography. And in that case those mitzvahs would only apply in the land. In fact, that's such a compelling argument that there are circumstances in the Torah where the principle of a land-based mitzvah therefore being only in that environment or a person-based mitzvah being in any environment is so compelling that it may even override the simple understanding of a word in a pasuk. And we have to see if that is what occurs here too. Also, when Rashi gives two explanations, the implication is that both of them are equally valid and we need to understand why each of these is uh, independently valid and why, in fact, we need two explanations and why the debate is attributed to Chachme Yisrael, not just to rabbis, but specifically to the wise sages of Israel, because this is not just a lesson in understanding the words of this particular Pasuk. This is a lesson in understanding how the whole of Judaism operates, two possibilities of where we place our focus in Judaism, and, and what we could learn from those two, two possibilities. And all of that contained in one Rashi commentary. The commentary is Al HaPasuk. It's on the Pasuk which says, that you may not eat bread or parched or roasted wheat grains until until you have brought the Oymer offering. And this applies in all of your settlements. So Pirish Rashi, Rashi explains on that Pasuk, is a subject of debate. There's, a, there's, there's two opinions between the sages of Israel. One school of thought says that all of your settlements means even outside of Israel. And the laws of Chadash that you may not immediately have new produce applies outside of Israel too. And the other opinion is, no, means that this law does not kick in until the Jewish people had conquered the entire Israel top to bottom. So, first let's ask the question, why does Rashi have to explain at all? The fact that Rashi had to at, uh, at tackle this issue and define for us what means. Because surely it's self-understood. Surely we're talking about pshat. That's what Rashi explains. The pshat. Surely the pshat of b'chol means exactly that. All of your settlements, wherever they might be, anywhere in the world. So why does Rashi have to explain it? Yes, sir. Okay. Besides that, halashem b'chol moshveisechem the truth is, is used in many places in the Torah, even before we get to Parsha Semor. And Rashi doesn't usually explain what it means because it's self explanatory. So, why now does Rashi think, oh, maybe you won't understand what means? I have to explain it. So, there's a clear reason why Rashi had to explain it. 
Because let's use an example. Previously in Parashas Tzav, it used that expression, There it was talking about the fact that we're forbidden to eat blood. Because of Rashi. So Rashi has to explain there why it says, Rashi says very clearly that eating blood is an obligation on the individual. No human, no Jewish person is ever allowed to eat blood. Where that person is, is irrelevant. So wherever the person may live, they are prohibited from eating blood. Now, in our parasha Emor, we're talking about something that has to do with harvest. Harvest is something that relates to the land. Aha! So this is no longer that we're talking about something that affects the individual. We're talking about something that affects the land. Especially if you consider we're talking about a mitzvah over here that depends on the Omer offering, and the Omer has to be brought from the harvest. That's how you bring an Omer offering. You have a new harvest, you take some of it, you bring it as this uh, Omer offering. And therefore, our Pasuk over here, sorry, I just skipped something. Sorry. So logic would say, ah, we would think. That because this is a land-based mitzvah, it has to do with harvest. Harvest grows out of the land. So therefore, if it's a land-based mitzvah, surely it should be land-based in its application. The land from which you bring the Omer offering, Israel, is the land that has the Chadash restriction. So that's why Rashi had to tell us something which should come as quite a surprise. In spite of the fact that we're dealing with a land-based obligation, there are those people who believe that it should apply outside of the land where this obligation applies. In other words, in Chutz In other words, Rashi is saying there are some who say, means literally wherever Jews live. And in fact, then, according to this, this opinion, Chadash is a mitzvah which is an exception. In spite of the fact that it is a responsibility that you have to the land that you're working, so in spite of that, at least according to the first opinion that Rashi quotes, it would be a mitzvah that applies outside of the land. Okay, so now we get why Rashi has to explain it, because you would have by default assumed that if this is a mitzvah that is tethered to the land, and that has to do with the Omer offering, which is brought from the harvest in Israel, you would have assumed it's a mitzvah that only applies in Israel, therefore he brings Yesh Omer, and there are those who say that in spite of it being a land-based mitzvah, it is actually not geographically locked, and it applies to all people, all Jews, anywhere in the world. Avot Tzarech Lehovin. Okay, so if that's what Rashi is explaining, we have a question. Rashi has given us a really neat explanation over here. Usually means wherever you live. Now we have the first explanation that says, in spite of this being a mitzvah which is based on a piece of land, it still applies wherever you live. 
למה הביא רש"י גם מספיר שהשני שבכל משווה שכל משמועי, ארץ ישראל בלבד, אך לאחר ירוש רבי שבע. Why did Rashi need a second explanation? Usually Rashi only brings a second explanation if the first explanation is somehow lacking. Well, the first explanation is fine. We've dealt with the assumption you would have had that because it's a land-based mitzvah, it only applies in Israel. And we have said, no, in spite of that, Bechol Moshe means wherever you live. Why bring the second explanation that there are others who say it means only Eretz Yisrael, as you would have thought for a land-based mitzvah, and Bechol Moshe means only after you've conquered the whole land. Now, if you come and look at it from this angle, this no longer seems to fit the pshat. Now you're changing the meaning of Bukhol Moshe from its normal pshat interpretation. Why is Rashi doing this? He had a satisfactory answer that fit with the words. Now he's bringing a second answer that contradicts the words. Let's take this question a layer deeper. We know as a rule that whenever Rashi, before giving the interpretations, tells us that there will be more than one interpretation, he didn't have to do that, right? Rashi could have just said two. And very often Rashi does just say, he has one explanation. Okay, it's not 100% perfect, so he has another to augment it. But when Rashi introduces Dafka by saying there are two or more explanations, what he's telling us is, Rashi is priming us to understand that both interpretations are equally valid as far as the pshat of the Pasuk is concerned. So why is the one put first? Because it's practical. You cannot write two things simultaneously. The fact that one was listed first is simply because it's impossible to write two consecutive interpretations. One has to come first. So that should surely apply to our case as well. The fact that Rashi, before telling us what the two views were, told us by way of introduction that there are two views, the minute Rashi said there are two interpretations, he's saying there are two equal interpretations. So the second one, which says, means only this mitzvah only applies in Israel and only after you've conquered the whole land, is equally valid in Pshat as the first explanation which fits so neatly into the words Now we need to understand this. Let's say that Rashi had a compelling reason why he needed to include the second interpretation. And you could say the reason Rashi needed to bring a second explanation is because we do have one question about the first explanation why would this be an exception? Usually, if a mitzvah is tied to the land of Israel, it only applies in the land of Israel. How come over here the Oimer has to be brought from the harvest of the land of Israel, but Chadash, which is the associated mitzvah, would apply everywhere else? Okay, so fine. So Rashi has to bring a second explanation. We get that. Question is, how 
Fine, we get it. There has to be a second explanation because you've got to tackle the question of why a mitzvah of the land would only would not only be in the land of Israel. But is it fair to say, is it even thinkable to suggest that the interpretation Rashi is bringing over here, the second interpretation is as clear in the pshat as the first? How? The, fa- the first one fits the words in many places in Tanakh and the second one doesn't. So it's valid to bring a second explanation if you feel that the first explanation is lacking. That's valid. We get it. We understand why Rashi does it. How does Rashi introduce it by saying these are two equally acceptable interpretations of the Pshat? They really don't appear to be that way. So Vahabir Bozed explanation is this. We're going to use another example. And the other example is going to be an example to show us that sometimes the rule overrides the words of the Pshat. What do I mean? One of the other prohibitions mentioned in our parasha is the prohibition against sterilizing any living creature, even an animal. So because of there the Pasuk says, that you may not sterilize an animal in your land. Rashi, Rashi explains, why does the Torah say you may not do this in your land? To imply Anything that's in your land. What, what do you mean anything? So Rashi immediately makes an incredible observation. He says, At face value sounds in your land as in the land of Israel. So it sounds like the prohibition against sterilizing an animal would only apply in Israel. Says Rashi, no. Why? Because this is Choyvas HaGuf. This is a mitzvah that relates to the entity, not to the land the entity is on. The prohibition is against sterilizing a living creature. That's a goof. That's a, a, an individual. That's an, an, a, a living item. Whenever you have choivas ha-goof, whenever you have a restriction or an obligation that relates to a specific being, the geography is no longer relevant where that being might be. So what is Rashi showing us over here? Rashi is telling us something incredibly important. When I have a klal, when I have an alachic principle that is a golden principle for an entire area of law, it is so powerful that even if the words at face value in a pasuk seem to contradict it, we will override our pshat understanding of the word in order to suit the klal. In other words, the klal says, if there is a mitzvah that applies to a person or to a living creature, that klal means it applies in every place on earth. If I now have a Pasuk that uses the word Be'artzachem, which normally would have meant only in Eretz Yisrael, but the mitzvah I'm talking about is the Klal of Choyvas HaGuf, that Klal overrides that mitzvah. Oh, sorry, overrides those words in the Pasuk. So Be'artzachem now no longer means only in Eretz Yisrael because this Klal is not going to bend to satisfy the word in the Pasuk. Now don't think uh, it's because the words don't really make sense. So Rashi had to find a drash to somehow reinterpret the words to make sense of the Pasuk. 
because there's nothing in that Rashi that indicates that he was looking for a drash. He doesn't even say that the Amru Rabbi Seinu or the Medrash, nothing. He takes it at face value. Rashi uses words which are aligned with his style of explaining Pshat. Rashi is making a very clear statement. In this Pasuk, the Pshat of the word is different from the normal Pshat. Normally the Pshat is that it means only in Eretz Yisrael. Here the Pshat, not a Drush, not an extrapolation, the Pshat of the word means whichever geographical location you might find yourself. How do I know that? Because the klal that Choyvas HaGuf applies everywhere overrides how I thought I should interpret the Pasuk. Now that's relevant for our conversation over here. If the first half of the klal is so compelling that Choyvas HaGuf is always beyond borders, then the second half of the klal must be equally compelling. That Choyvas Karka, if I have a mitzvah that is associated specifically with land, then it is geographically specific. So in the same way as Rashi was 100% convinced that the first klal of Choyvas HaGuf is so clear that it will even override how you thought you should understand the words of the Pasuk in Pshat, same thing will apply to Choyvas Karka. It is such a powerful message that it also would override the Pasuk as we thought we should understand it in Pshat. So let's Let's uh, track that back to our Rashi over here. In our context, Rashi has a difficult time accepting that Chadash should be locked only into Eretz Yisrael. Uh, sorry, that it should be Noeg Bechutz Laaretz. That it should be uh, that it should apply outside of Israel. It's a Chovas Karka. And the Klal says, Choyvas Karka has to be geographically locked into Eretz Yisrael. That's why Rashi had to bring a second interpretation because he says the first interpretation, the first interpretation I gave you fits magically into the words beautiful, wherever you might be, even in outside of Israel. But Rashi says, but I have a problem with that because we have a klal and the klal says that choivas karka is only in Israel. So yes, I'm going to have to now have a more liberal interpretation of what Bechol Moshe means and say it only means in Israel. Why? Because I don't want to undermine the klal that Choyvas Karka is only in Israel. Aye, so what does it say Bechol Moshe To teach you that it means it applies in Israel only after the whole of Israel is under our hand. Of course we understand that this second interpretation of Bechol Moshe is not absolutely squeaky clean. That's why Rashi had to also bring the explanation. From here we learn that Chadash is in Chutzaret, the first explanation he gave. So why does Rashi need two explanations? Again, generally speaking, when Rashi brings two explanations, it's because neither one of them stands firmly on its own two feet. So what's lacking in the first explanation is it goes against the Kal that Choyvas Karka is 
only in Israel. What's lacking in the second explanation is because the second explanation suggests that in this Pasuk is different to how is in every other place. In every other place it means Israel, not Israel, wherever you might be. And here we're focusing it specifically and saying it's only in Israel. Now that's actually a huge chiddush to suggest that we suddenly have one reference in the Torah where B'chol Moshe means something different to what it always consistently means in every other place. That's why Rashi had to bring the first explanation too. So we see it clearly now. There is a need for two explanations because the first explanation which takes B'chomosh V'seichem literally runs into trouble with the klal that it's a choves karkas so really it should only be in Israel. Why are you saying it's everywhere? And the second explanation which addresses that issue runs into the problem of saying, oh, so you're telling me that B'chomosh V'seichem suddenly means something different to everywhere else in, in Torah? And that's how we can now come to understand why Rashi introduced it by saying that there are two explanations, which implies that they're both of equal status with regards to this, uh, to this Pasuk. Because they are. They both are the same. Both of them have a similar drawback to their interpretation. In both cases, they're taking the words as an exception to an established rule. The first interpretation says that this Pasuk is an exception to the rule that a Choyvas Karka only usually applies in Israel. In the second explanation, the explanation is an exception to the rule of what B'chol Moshe usually means. So how are they both shkulim, how they're both equal? Because they both require a, 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 somehow a loosening up the definition of an accepted rule. Either an accepted rule in halacha, first interpretation, or an accepted rule of how you interpret a phrase in the Pasuk, second interpretation. So now, if they're both equal, keven sheshnei apirushim shkulim b'pshat if both of them are of equal value in the interpretation of Pshat, so a really smart student will have a burning question. If they both have equal validity, what prompted the one school of thought to interpret the one way and the other school of thought to interpret the other way? What prompted one school of thought to say means wherever in the world this might be, that you have a harvest, you are bound by the laws of Chadash. And the other interpretation takes the same words and says means only in Israel, but once you've conquered the whole land. So Rashi anticipates this bright question and says the two shitos the two different ways of explaining the Pasuk, they speak to a much greater issue of two different ways of how to see what the purpose is of our uh, experience in Yiddishkeit, like what, our intentions, what should we be focused on as we do mitzvahs. So Rashi alludes to this by saying that this is a debate between Chachamim, not just Rabboisai in the normal way, or Rabbi Seinu, but Chachamim. Deloy kirlshoin rashi horigila nechluku boy rabbi sein vachyetzbaze. 
Normally Rashi would have said something like Rabbi saying, why doesn't he? If he would have said Rabbi Seinu, then he would have meant that the argument over here is how to interpret the exact words of the Pasuk. Rather, he says, And this is where it gets really beautiful. He says, Chachma Yisrael are those individuals who don't just look to say what does the Torah mean in this particular context, but they look to say what is the feeling that you're supposed to associate with this particular mitzvah? What is the intention that you're supposed to have when you fulfill a particular mitzvah? And because of those two different approaches, that's how we're going to get two different interpretations of the Pasuk. What does that mean? Vabir Boset, the explanation is that Kol Karban Tzarech Le'oyre Bekerev Adam Hergesh Nafshim Mesuyom. Every korban is meant to elicit a particular personal response from the person bringing the korban. And the particular response should suit what the theme of that particular korban is. The examples that the Rebbe is going to use are actually quite self-explanatory. If a person brings a sin offering or a guilt offering, obviously it's meant to elicit from the person a feeling of regret and remorse of what they had done wrong and a resolution to do better. So because the different types of carbon um, are supposed to, sorry, I skipped one over there. Let's say a person brings a thanksgiving carbon, supposed to elicit a sense of gratitude to Hashem. So that's why we say that when a person brings a carbon, as Rashi himself says, you actually have to have focused intention at the time that you bring the carbon. It's not good enough just to go through the motions. You actually have to have the, the right attitude and the right psychology associated with that carbon. And the truth is that that's not limited only to a personal carbon. Even when there's a carbon brought on behalf of the entire community, that carbon is meant to elicit from every member of the community the appropriate attitude and feeling. For example, in Yom Kippur, when we brought, well, the Kohen Gadol brought these Seirei uh, Chatos on behalf of the Jewish people, so the entire Jewish people had to have an intention of remorse, even though it was a singular korban brought on behalf of everybody. It wasn't personalized. So the principle is that when you bring something to Hashem, it's supposed to stimulate a certain psychological response. Which can apply directly over here to the Omer as well. Why are you not allowed to eat the first produce of a new harvest until you've brought the carbon oimer? Because as the Torah says, the first harvest should be dedicated to Hashem. So what should that do for me psychologically, emotionally? The attitude that this is supposed to instill in a Jewish person is, if I have something, first I have to donate to Hashem from what I have, and then I can enjoy the benefits myself. So that's the attitude of Reishis Ketzirchem. You don't just go and eat Chadash. You don't just help yourself to the first harvest for your own benefit. First you dedicate something to Hashem, and then you can take for yourself. Hello. Now, the carbon oimer, according to all opinions, is only brought from harvest that took place inside Eretz Yisrael. 
Now, logically, who is affected by bringing the carbon Omer must be Jews living in Israel because that's where it takes place. That's which harvest is used for the Omer. So, immediately you have a question. So now we have a question. If the goal of the Oymer is to stimulate within the Jewish people a sense that I should take whatever I have and first give to Hashem before I take for myself, if I don't live in Israel and I don't participate directly in the Oymer and it doesn't really touch my life, how am I inspired to have that awareness? That's where you have two different schools of thought between the sages of Israel. How we are so-called remotely or indirectly affected by what's happening in Israel. So the first opinion says practically, just as the inhabitants of Israel may not eat produce from the new harvest until the Omer is brought, it doesn't matter where you live. The only way we're going to stimulate you to have that same awareness is to prohibit you also from eating from your new produce until that oimer is brought. So that will keep them grounded. That will help these people remember, even though I'm not personally contributing to the oimer offering, but the fact that I have to wait to eat until that oimer is brought drives at home in a very clear way that I have to remember to give to Hashem first. The second school of thought says the exact opposite is how you stimulate people psychologically. So the first shita says, make them participate remotely in the experience and that will keep them aware that they have to bring the first to Hashem. And the second shita says, no, dafka, take the mitzvah away from them and that's what will stimulate them. So the second opinion says we don't awaken people to the reality that they have to first contribute to Hashem by making them wait to eat their new product, product outside of Israel until the Omer is brought inside of Israel. You do the exact opposite. The fact that if I have a field where I live outside of Israel does not obligate me to bring the Omer offering, which means then I'm not restricted by the Chodesh laws. That should drive home to people that we are in a lower spiritual state than they are in Israel. Because they have a mitzvah that we can't do. Which means we don't deserve to bring the Omer because we're outside of Israel. And therefore we don't deserve to have the practice of Chodesh. And therefore, according to the second opinion, that sense of loss, that lack of participation, the fact that we cannot be part of this magnificent mitzvah of the Oymer and Chodosh, etc., that in itself should be so profound for the Jews living outside of Israel that it should influence them that they have to be extra dedicated to Hashem. They have to dafka give the first of everything to Hashem. 
Now, with this information, we can take a look, and it will take a bit more of a spiritual angle, at why, if there are two equal opinions, why Rashi first gave the opinion that Chadash applies outside of Israel, and only then gave the opinion that says Chadash is limited to Israel, but only once the whole place is conquered. Especially because we know that there are two equal status commentaries. And as we mentioned earlier, the only reason one has to come first is because it's impossible to write two interpretations simultaneously. But we know that in Torah everything is absolutely precise, and the fact that one version is given first tells us very clearly that there's something about the order that is relevant to us, even if it's on a spiritual, if not a pshat level. So let's examine, we have two attitudes over here, right? The one attitude says you have to be conscious of always giving the first things to Hashem. Therefore, even if you live outside of Israel, hold back on your Chadash. And the other opinion says, no, 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 Dafka, don't have the law of Chadash so that you will appreciate that you're not keyed into this wonderful opportunity and awareness that they have in Israel. And that will push you harder to do more for Hashem. Let's analyze how those two different approaches would affect us differently. If the way that we align the Chutzla Aretz community with the Eretz Yisrael community is to say, you cannot eat while they cannot eat, you're talking the language of the body. Eating, something that the body relates to, being unable to eat is something that the body feels. If you restrict a person from eating a particular food, it doesn't really bother their neshama too much, but it certainly bothers the body. So the first approach, approach says, speak the language of the body. You want to awaken people to be committed to Hashem? Talk, tachlis. You can't eat. What do you mean? I can't eat. My body is suddenly going to be surprised. That will create the awareness that I need to dedicate stuff to Hashem. The second opinion says, you, you don't have this opportunity. You don't have access to the mitzvah of Chodesh. We're taking away a mitzvah from you. And that is supposed to stimulate these people to say, I want to have the attitude that they have in Eretz Yisrael, and I'm going to push myself even harder than the people in Eretz Yisrael because I feel like I'm lacking something. That's That's speaking directly to the neshama. The neshama is the one who's going to care about not having an opportunity for a mitzvah. That's where you'll find a person uh, develops this incredible yearning and, and, and urge to be able to connect to Hashem. So the two approaches over here. Do we talk the language of the body to stimulate people into spiritual behaviors? Or do we talk the language of the neshama? Well, depends where you're up to in your spiritual development. Now we can understand the order in which Rashi presents the two opinions. In the early stages of a person's spiritual development, the body is a force to be reckoned with. The nefesh habahamis is alive and kicking. Therefore, Therefore, at that stage of the game, you rarely have to speak the language that the Nefesh Abahamis and the body will understand. Take away their food. They will understand that. And then from there you can grow and develop and eventually graduate to the point that you can actually speak directly to the Neshama. But in the early stages of personal development, you have to speak the language of the body, otherwise you're not going to get anywhere.
החילק בין שני פירושי רש"י אלה אין רק מנגיע לחוץ לארץ אם נוהג שם מסר חודש עם לאו. Now, at this point, you would think that the two different opinions are really just debating how the mitzvah of Chodesh affects you outside of Israel, because that's what it seems to be at face value. The truth is that their debate also centers on how the mitzvah is experienced inside Eretz Yisrael. And the government again, Eretz Yisrael, Gufa. Im Yisrael Chodesh Eretz Yisrael, Hizchil, Rak Lachar Yoshu V'Shiv, K'may HaPirush HaShemi. According to the second opinion, the mitzvah of Chodesh and of the Omer only kicked in in Eretz Yisrael once the whole land had been conquered. Or, like the first opinion, although it doesn't say it clearly, but it insinuates that the mitzvah of Chodesh happened straight away, as soon as the Jews entered Eretz Yisrael, even before they had conquered everything. Now that we've explained the two psychological approaches, are we talking the language of the guf or are we talking the language of the neshama? So we can also understand how they both, each of these opinions, would view how Chodesh happens inside Eretz Yisrael too. So the two different approaches, prioritize working with the body or get straight to working with the neshama, that is relevant to people living in Eretz Yisrael. Why? If I go with the first opinion that says the big focus is speak the language of the body, have an influence over the nefesh Bahamis. Then, then if I'm in Israel, the primary focus is not so much on bringing the Oymer, what I give to Hashem, the primary focus is on not eating Chodesh, what I deny my body. Because if I go with that Shitta, and the entire approach to spiritual development is speaking the language of the body, then the bigger issue is that the body may not eat Chodesh than the fact that I have to bring Omer as an offering to Hashem. So according to that opinion, you start that work straight away as soon as you get into Eretz Yisrael. Even before you're completely settled in a holy environment as the Jews would have been settled in the holy land. Once you settled in a holy environment, then you're operating on your neshama, speaking the language of the neshama. Why? Why do you start straight away? So even as you get into the land, you're just starting to establish holiness, you could already start speaking the language of your nefesh Bahamis. Whereas according to the second view, when they come from the angle that says that the main way that you create an awareness of the fact that I should dedicate myself to Hashem is to speak directly without any impediment to the neshama, that you can only do once the whole Eretz Yisrael is is conquered. So effectively, whichever opinion you go with, the message remains the same. The shkulim, right? The two equal interpretations. The message is, when you're starting out in your avodah Hashem, you have to be able to speak the language of your nefesh Bahamas. You have to be able to speak to the body, because that's the part of you that needs to be worked upon. Once you have progressed in your Yiddishkeit, then you begin to speak higher grade. You begin to speak the language of the neshama. Let's not talk so much about what we should not be doing. Let's talk more about what we should stimulate ourselves to want to do.